is the 400th anniversary of Thanksgiving. Did you know that the Indians and pilgrims didn't plan for a feast together in that famous Thanksgiving of 1621? In fact, the pilgrims had already started the feast and festivities when, for reasons that you'll find out in this episode, the Indians showed up uninvited and unannounced. And did you know that Indians and pilgrims didn't have a second Thanksgiving the next year in 1622 or in 1623 or in 1624 or in any other year after that? Hey there, news peelers. Today is November 18, 2021, one week before Thanksgiving. And this is Adele, the host of the History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors from around the world who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this Peeling the History Behind News, the histories of many countries we read, watch, and hear about in our news media. For example, whole series on Ukraine's, Iran's, Russia's, and China's histories. And of course, several series on the U.S. economy, culture, politics, environment, science, and much more. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. Celebrating Thanksgiving is a cherished American tradition. In the old days, when my extended family, the uncles, aunts, and grandmas were all alive and lived nearby, our Thanksgiving dinners could be up to 30 people. With the kids running around and the adults drinking, it's a wonder that the whole day didn't degenerate into mayhem. Nowadays, our Thanksgiving dinners are more tame, only about 10 people or so. But this is not a podcast about my family and its traditions. We're here to peel the history behind news. And the news here is that it's been 400 years since Native Americans held a feast with English settlers to presumably give thanks for a good harvest and good fortunes. And their Thanksgiving dinner must have been crazier than my family's. Some 90 Wampanoag warriors and about 50 English men, women, and children. 400 years makes for a long tradition. While we celebrate this wonderful tradition and should celebrate it, it also behooves us to better understand it, particularly since November is also Native American Heritage Month. To do that, we spoke with Professor David Silverman, the author of a 2019 book titled this land is their land, the Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the troubled history of Thanksgiving. Professor Silverman teaches at George Washington University's Department of History, Columbian College of Arts and Sciences, and he has written several other books about the history of Native Americans. A link to his academic homepage is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Silverman and I peel the history behind this news. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Professor Silverman, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. In 2019, you published a book titled, This Land is Their Land. But the title is actually longer than this, and I think it's important for our audience to hear the whole title. Uh, why don't you please read out the title in, in its entirety for our audience and then tell us, what is this book about? Sure. Uh the title is This Land is Their Land, which is a play on 
the song, the Woody Guthrie yeah. song. And the the subtitle is uh, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving. The and Troubled History of Thanksgiving. That's correct. That's correct. And uh, yeah, by, by troubled, I mean, uh, I, what I'm referring to is that we have this myth um, that is part of American tradition. Um, that is incorrect. It's historically incorrect. And uh, moreover, that I contend does some real social and cultural damage, um, especially to indigenous people. And that's what I mean by the term troubled. What kind of, when you say social and cultural damage, uh, before I ask about the sort of damage it inflicts on indigenous people, does it also have cultural repercussions for uh, sort of ethnic majorities, uh, racial majorities. Yes. I mean, I, you know, I, we're experiencing a moment right now and, you know, that this, this has happened cyclically through my life. And I know through throughout American history, um, where we have progress on the subject of race, which is to say that, you know, people begin to scrutinize the role of race in our society um, and to try to address um, the inequalities and the injustices that that stem from our racial constructions, which after all are inventions, they have nothing to do with nature. Um, and then it produces a backlash, right? In which parts of society say, you know, you're taking this too far, or, you know, you're, you're ruining um, our faith and our nation, or you're dividing our traditions. Us. Right. That, that, that's exactly right. And um, Thanksgiving is part of, of that discussion. You know, when I say that the, the myth is, is troubled, what I'm referring to is that it's a feel-good story about a fundamentally bloody process, which is colonialism. Um, and I, I submit that the reluctance, particularly of white Americans, to confront how utterly brutal the colonization of this country was, including by the United States itself at the expense of, of Native nations, leaves us less equipped to, to cast a critical eye on our society today. And so a critical view of history is, is essential to a critical view of our present future. I think this explanation uh, sets me up for my next question and sort of answers it. Right at the introduction of your book, you make the following statement. Serious critical history tends to be hard on the living. I had to read the sentence admittedly a couple of times to really sort of, it's thought provoking. It's a bold statement, hard on the living. What do you mean by this? Serious critical history. Right. It means taking a hard look at the past as it was rather than as we wanted it, we want it to have been. Um, most societies create myths that make that make those societies appear just um, and the product of timeless positive values. Um, is that a bad thing? I think it is. I think it okay. is. I, I, I think it is a bad thing. It, there's, there's nothing wrong um, with, with celebrating positive values. Um, but we do ourselves and we do historical truth a disservice when we render complicated historical actors who, you know, had positive and negative qualities, who did good things, yeah. bad things. And instead, we turn them into these demigods um, who could do no wrong. Um, that those that's not a reasonable model for us or for future generations. And it's not reasonable, reasonable to impose that sanitized view on people in the past who were much more complicated uh, than that. Uh, we're better able to address our own shortcomings and victories um, if we can see the people of the past in three-dimensional form. And what you're proposing is intellectually rigorous, isn't it? It's, it's not only, yes, it's intellectually rigorous in, in this respect. And what, what I'm, the challenge that I'm posing here, when I say that, that serious critical history is hard on the living, and then I apply that 
that principle to the Thanksgiving story. By the living, I, I not only mean white Americans, I mean all Americans, including indigenous people, because there's a hard story for indigenous people in, in the tale that I'm telling too. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, this is, a, this is a, a challenge that asks all of us to think about historical actors in the past, not as we, but as they. In other words, you know, Wait, say that again, please. Sure. To look at historical actors in the past as not we as rather than they. That is correct. You know, one of the things that has always struck me is the way in which my college students, my uh -huh. what? Let me let me phrase this differently. My white college students who come from any one of a variety of backgrounds. Right. Some right. of them are Italian Americans. Some of them are Polish Americans. Some of them are Jewish Americans. Blah, blah, blah. They will refer to English colonists from the 17th century <laughs> as, as we. we. I so see they, they see. have been conditioned. They have been conditioned by virtue of growing up in this country to think of themselves as white people, right? An identity which their, their forebears did not have. And then they use that to connect to the story of the white people in America. Now, they don't. Now, let's be clear. They don't descend from those people at all. They don't. In refer fact, they were discriminated. Their ancestors may have been discriminated by those people well, that we that, call we. Right. That's precisely right. But they don't refer to Native Americans of the past as we. Now they don't descend from them either. That's but actually, but the, right, descent, yeah. the descendants, both of the English and of Native people, are their fellow Americans today. I have also found, and this is an interesting pattern: none of my students of color, of any description refer to people from the 17th and 18th century as we, unless they're native, unless they're native. Native people do it all the time. And I, what I think that mindset does is it makes both white people and indigenous people less able to view their own ancestors in a critical light. And the fact of the matter is this, all of their ancestors did good things and bad things. They had triumphs and they made mistakes. Nobody wants to refer to the we of the past as having made serious mistakes, as having behaved in ways that were horrific or that were unfathomable to us. And yet all of us have those people in our backgrounds. Why did you pick this book? Why Thanksgiving? There are many different epics uh, throughout uh, mm -hmm. uh, Native American history, post-colonialism that are unfortunate and really uh, have impacts on their fates and lives. Why, why Thanksgiving? There were a few reasons. One was this. Um, you know, I've been writing about Native American history for the better part of 25 years. Yes. And I began my career by working on the Wampanoags and that historical work involved outreach to modern day Wampanoag people on Martha's Vineyard in Cape Cod. And what they told me repeatedly was how hard Thanksgiving season was for them and especially for their children. Um, that at best, it seemed as if the rest of American society was ignoring their historical plight. And at worst, it seemed to them that American society was reveling in it. And that hurt was magnified in school settings when Wampanoag people- Or Thanksgiving plays and everything, right? That's, that's precisely right. In which Wampanoag kids had to perform in these Thanksgiving pageants. I don't know if Thanksgiving pageants are familiar to all your readers, but these are these plays that, that are very common in New England and other parts of the Northeast in which grade school kids dress up in cartoonish fashion, like pilgrims with giant buckles on every conceivable uh, article of clothing. And as Indians, by which I mean Plains Indians, I mean, they look like they rode out of a Hollywood Western into New England. Um, and Which are different than New England and uh, Native Americans, right? Oh, yeah, they're, they're vastly different. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, America homogenizes all Native yeah, people yeah, yeah. through Hollywood stereotypes. And uh, you, what they what this play, these plays are all about are friendly Indians effectively handing over their country to the English so the English can create the United States. And then the Indians just disappear. Nobody knows how. And what's more, 
uh, Wampanoag people have told me how frequently teachers who were involved in these plays would tell the students that the New England Indians had all disappeared, that just vanished, even as they had Native kids sitting there in front of them. (laughs) So that was one reason. Another reason is that I regularly participate in these teacher training institutes for primary and secondary school history instructors. And uh, I usually do so through Mount Vernon Estate and Gardens as George Washington's ancestral estate. And you know, we talk about the American Revolution, indigenous people, and so on and so forth. But the teachers always, when, they, when it's time for Q&A, what they want to ask me about is less George Washington and Native America than the history of the first Thanksgiving, because all of them teach it. It's the one cameo appearance of indigenous people in the American history curriculum for the colonial period. It's actually a good point. You're right. It is one of the few instances in which pretty much all schools across America teach about, well, purport to teach about Native Americans. They mention Native Americans, right? Right. And they do it during Native American Heritage Month. And and almost every single one of these teachers said to me, I feel totally ill-equipped to address this subject with the depth that it deserves. So I wrote this book for Wampanoag people who told me their stories. I wrote this book for teachers on the front lines who reach millions of American school kids every year. And then finally, you know, the final reason is it's an anniversary and uh, yeah. we're, we're, we've uh, 16, uh, 19, uh, rather 2020 was the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the Mayflower. 2021 is the 400th anniversary of the so-called first Thanksgiving. And for reasons that are beyond my ken, anniversaries have a way of focusing the public's attention on these historical episodes. If I wrote this book two years from now or two years before now, no one would pay attention to it. But if it well, falls on ha- an anniversary, well, then you can reach a wider audience. That's that's a good point. And we're having this podcast now because it is the 400th anniversary of the famous quote unquote Thanksgiving. Um, we're going to talk about these fascinating points that you brought up. Uh, Wampanoag Indians, how they supposedly vanished and uh, uh, education uh, about Native Americans. But before we get into that, I just wanted to briefly uh, sort of touch on an interesting parallel history of source for you just to clarify it for me and our audience, please. As I understand it, Jamestown contended with Plymouth for being a source of our Thanksgiving tradition as well. And I think at one point, even President Kennedy was making a declaration about Thanksgiving and he had to include Jamestown in his history. Am I correct in this? And if so, how significant was their claim? Yeah, it's one of the silliest battles. Um, So (laughs) so let's be clear about this. Uh Native Americans had been celebrating Thanksgivings of their own for who knows how long, perhaps even thousands of years before the arrival of of Europeans. Every European nation had its own Thanksgiving tradition of one sort or another. Uh, Virginia had Thanksgiving. Plymouth Colony had Thanksgiving. There's no first in all of the yeah, actually Spanish going. actually held, held the first. Uh, right. They uh, uh, every human group across the world has days in which they offer thanks to their spirits when a drought ends or a military victory happens or any one of a number of pleasant things. Um, so it, you you are effectively swimming against the tide if you're trying to find the first of these rituals. Why don't we take a short break and then talk about the events leading up to the famous 1621 Thanksgiving. In addition to Thanksgiving, the 4th of July is another cherished American holiday. In fact, it's a patriotic American holiday. But it took more than a century after we gained our independence for us to recognize our Independence Day as a holiday. And still, Dr. Thomas Balzerski explains that different parts of the country didn't much bother with 4th of July celebrations until well after World War II. The link to my conversation with Dr. Balzerski, which is pretty darn interesting, I gotta tell you, is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Silverman. Professor Silverman, 
before we get into the history of Thanksgiving itself, please paint a picture for us of what was happening, transpiring in North America uh, during the months prior to the arrival of the pilgrims to Plymouth. Well, there's a, a lot of context um, that needs to go into understanding um, especially why the Wampanoags did what they did when they decided to permit the Mayflower passengers to settle in their country and then reached out to them um, in ways that included the feast that we now call the, the first Thanksgiving. Let me start with this basic principle, um, which might seem obvious to your listeners when it's stated, um, but that most people don't think about all that much, which is this, that what the Thanksgiving myth and m- many of our history lessons purport to have been a new world was nothing of the sort that the Americas were an old world with ancient civilizations that had existed for thousands of years and that Europeans did not discover <laughs> the Americas that people had already been here for quite a long time. Um, and that's important background to understand that this was not a wilderness. It was a settled place um, with active people living their lives and, and coping um with all of the challenges um, that day-to-day existence posed to them. Those challenges began to increase um, significantly and become much more serious in the years leading up to 1620. It will come as a surprise, I imagine, to most of your listeners that the Wampanoags had been in contact with European colonists for a century before the Mayflower arrived. This was not a first contact episode. Wow, for a century. A century. The first documented, and this is only the first documented, uh, case of contact between the Wampanoags and Europeans is 1524. And that's between the Wampanoags and a French-employed Italian sailor named Giovanni de Verrazzano. After it's whom like 97 pro- years, 96 years earlier. Right. And it might he might not have been the first. I, he's only the first for which we have records. Um, and the pace of those contacts between European explorers and the Wampanoags and other native people along the coast picked up significantly between 1602 and 1620. They were becoming, those contacts were taking place several times a year and they tended not to go well. Um, Sometimes they began with trade and would degenerate into violence when one party or the other overreacted to the the other side's provocations or imagined provocations. Uh, But worse still was there was this pattern of Europeans raiding the coast for captives, um, seizing indigenous people and then hauling them back across the Atlantic, either for sale into slavery or for training as interpreters and guides for future voyages. And the Wampanoags had suffered many of these raids over the course of years and as such had developed a healthy caution whenever they saw one of these ships bobbing off the coast. Um, They certainly coveted the trade of these newcomers. These newcomers had metal. (laughs) These native people were people without metal. And these folks have hatchets and knives and kettles and, and such, never mind the other goods that they boast. But they also represented danger. And so native people were cautious about that. The danger they represented also was epidemic disease. And between 1616 and 1619, some European ship, we don't know which one, had inadvertently introduced an epidemic. We don't know which one. I suspect it was smallpox, but we don't know. But it had introduced an epidemic into native southern New England that eviscerated the Wampanoag people. I, we're, we're talking about population losses uh, approaching 80 90%, according to Native accounts after the fact. Which is incon- an inconceivable loss to people today. Think about what, the, the panic and the tumult that we're going through with COVID. And our losses are a mere <laughs> fraction of what yeah, these people suffer. Yeah, and yeah. we know what's happening. They didn't even know what was happening. They didn't know what this disease was. They didn't know where it came from. They didn't know what had caused it. And in the wake of this catastrophic loss of population, 
the Wampanoags begin experiencing raids from their Narragansett rivals, Narragansett Indian rivals, to their west. Narragansett's inhabited what's now Rhode Island, it still do. Uh, the Wampanoags uh, were, were a little farther to the east. The Narragansetts hadn't contracted the disease. So what, when the Mayflower arrives, the Wampanoags are desperate. Their population is diminished. They're facing subjugation at the hands of their Narragansett enemies. And here's the ship full of people with guns and metal tools and other weaponry with whom the Wampanoags might be able to form an alliance not because the Wampanoags are friendly, not because they want to establish an English society among them that will overwhelm them, because they want allies against their intertribal rivals. That's the basic context for this outreach to the Mayflower passengers. Were they wary of them? No question. Again, they had suffered years of raids at the hands of people like this. But that danger also meant that perhaps they could harness the power of these people and direct it against their Narragansett rivals. The passengers of the Mayflower um, in the hundred year history that you, you, you were sharing with me since 1524, and they were the first attempt to settle in the area, right? Prior attempts were raids as far as we know. Uh, well, that, that's a somewhat difficult question to, to answer. So there had been an attempt to found a colony in Maine, um, a colony called Sagadahawk in 1607, same year as Jamestown. Oh, that that colony failed, and I yeah, I think it's important to keep in mind most attempts to found colonies before 1620 failed. I, Roanoke's a famous example, yeah, but yeah. The, the the coast is littered with failed attempts by the English, the French, and the Spanish to found colonies. And what why the colonies usually fail is poor relations with indigenous people. So the way you're describing this kind of is counter to popular history, uh, you know, where they talk about how the pilgrims happened upon the coast of Massachusetts that they found Plymouth. If they had already been in contact with these people for uh, many decades, there ought to have been maritime maps, maps of the coast. Yes. Oh, oh it goes beyond that. One of the sailors on the Mayflower had already been to New Southern New England, and he's the one who suggests to them when they anchor initially off the very tip of Cape Cod that perhaps they could build a settlement at what we now call Plymouth. It was a Wampanoag town called Patuxet. And what he said was all the people there have been wiped out by this disease. There's no one there to contest your settling. And what's more the land is already cleared because of Wampanoag cornfields. So you don't have to go through the labor, the incredible labor of cutting down the woods in order to establish your planting fields. The work's already done for you. There's no shrubberies all clean for, for, for farming. Um, let's go back to something that you said, and you bring this up um, in your book. You have a picture in your book of the rotunda of the Capitol. Um, yeah. I had to jog my memory to, to see whether or not I remember it actually to my visit there. But it's essentially there is carved in relief into sandstone, the scene of a Native American presenting, I think it's corn, to pilgrims who are sort of getting off the boat and coming ashore. It, it, and next to this image in your book, you say the myth of friendly Indians. And you brought it up again in our conversation. Yeah. Squanto was a friendly Indian. Native American. Um, we learned that in our uh, grade school, right? Put that in perspective for us, please. Okay, sure. Um, when in the rare moments where Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer strike a deal, <laughs> we don't say they did so because they are friendly towards one another. They're being strategic. That's that's kind of the glib response I have to this characterization. Well, I, I mean, it's just you know, so, look, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, um, white Americans love stories of about Native Americans who helped. Um, you know, that relief in the in the rotunda of the Capitol that you mentioned is not standing alone. It is alongside a image in stone of 
Pocahontas saving John Smith from his execution. And next to that is William Penn and the Delaware Indians having their treaty under the tree of peace in which the Delawares cede their land to the English. And it goes on and Sakaja. I don't remember any of these. They're all there in that relief, sort of these feel good images. That's right. It's bloodless colonialism. It's native people who help. And except us with open arms. That's right. Um, Let's talk about that 1621 Thanksgiving. And I use the word Thanksgiving in in quotation marks because I know uh, that wasn't what it was called then. Please describe that first event. Um, How close is it (laughs) to our tradition now? It's it's close to our tradition only in the vaguest of ways. So there was a feast. Yep. It did take place at Plymouth. That, was it in uh, November? Uh, we don't know. Uh, it was okay. in the fall sometime. Okay. Um, and the, the two accounts we have don't say. We know the harvest is in, uh, but that could mean it's September or October. It's okay. really hard to say. Um, we know that the number of English people was dwarfed by that of the Wampanoags. Uh, there's, you know, there's upwards of 90 to 100 Wampanoags who show up at this thing. There are only 50 English colonists at Plymouth. Um, so, you know, when the Wampanoags first show up, they're startled. <laughs> they're all men, the Wampanoags who show up and they're yeah. armed. Um, so, you know, as far as the English could tell right away, they're they're there to get massacred. <laughs> I mean, they're <laughs> arriving to, to massacre them. Um, turns out not to have been the case. Um, most of the foods that we associate with that feast would not have been there. Um, they did. They almost did they have turkey. Had- They almost certainly had turkey, even though the only two accounts of the feast say they had fowl with a W. (laughs) And so that certainly means ducks and geese. But an earlier entry in the in the journal of William Bradford, uh, the the governor of Plymouth, says that the colony had bagged a lot of turkeys earlier that season. So there's almost certainly turkey. But most of the rest of the, the meal would have consisted of shellfish fish including eels um eels eels we're not talking sushi we're talking eels eels we're talking eels eels um of which there were many around plymouth um we're talking about corn uh corn stews fundamentally native american food here uh, corn stews with, with squash uh maybe with berries with meat mixed in fish mixed in um there's no butter so imagine Thanksgiving without butter. I know there's, there's no flour. There's no sugar. So sugar, I can see, but no flour. They they weren't growing wheat. Oh, yeah. they were growing corn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there might have been cornmeal and and you know a, a a wide range of Native American dishes from this region centered on processing cornmeal. Um, could be a stew, it could be some form of cornbread or pancake, um, but no wheat flour, no. Interesting. And so that, that that means most of our, oh, there's no potatoes. Um, so mo- you know, most of our dishes that we consider to be traditional um, are fairly recent developments. We'll be back after a short break to talk about what happened after the 1621 Thanksgiving. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Professor Silverman, so the pilgrims and Native Americans have Thanksgiving in 1621. Did they have a second Thanksgiving together, let's say in 1622? No. 
Uh, no, they most, they most certainly did not. Um, Why not? Well, <laughs> the the English um, actually sent an emissary to the Wampanoag leader, Usamequin or Massasoit, and say to him, "You people have to stop showing up unannounced at our colony because when you do, a it frightens us, and and b we have to feed y'all and." We don't have enough to go around, um, so they 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 give him. Wait, wait, uh, let me. I got to ask this question then, uh, Professor Silverman. Was the first Thanksgiving? I I think you alluded to this. Was that an unannounced as well, or were yes. they invited? Oh, the, the the English have did not invite these folks to come. What what happened was the and the Wampanoag oral tradition has helped to inform. Uh, to inform me on this point, uh, the English are firing gun celebrate. They're engaged in celebratory gunfire. Uh, you know, the, the hard work of the harvest is done. Uh, they're going to take a couple days off. There's drinking involved. The men are outside uh, going through military drills, target practice, and the like. Well, the Wampanoags have a defensive alliance with these folks, and among the threats that Plymouth Colony was guarding against was not only the threat of indigenous people in Southern New England, the Narragansetts above all, but the French, uh, because the French knew that the English were engaged in this enterprise and the French claimed this stretch of coast as their own. And so there was every reason to believe that a French vessel or fleet could sail into Plymouth Harbor and wipe the place out. Um, so the, the Wampanoags hear this gunfire and they show up in mass armed, ready to help these people with whom they had found, formed an alliance. I always thought they were invited to a feast. No, the feast is already going on. <laughs> they, oh, they show, wow. they, yeah, they they contribute to the feast. They uh, they send out some of their men and uh, haul back. I think it's three three deer or something like that. Um, but the the, <laughs> the problem of showing up unannounced it, uh -huh. to the English is a very real one. So they give the Wampanoag leader Massasoit or Usamequin, as as his formal name was, um, a necklace, and they say, "Look, when when you're sending someone to talk with us, have him put on this necklace, and we'll know that he came from you. Otherwise, tell your people to stop dropping by." Okay, I guess that kind of makes sense. Well, um, I, you, I'll tell you what, from a defensive purpose, it, it did make sense because in, in the year 1622, um, the, the Powhatan Indians um, uh, in whose territory Jamestown uh, was founded. So we're going all the way down to Virginia. Now. Right. They launch a surprise attack against the English in that year. Um, in which they kill the English with their own tools. I mean, they, they make it look like they're just there for casual visits as they were in the custom of doing, and then turned in an instant on, on these colonists. So the, the, the colonists of Plymouth know that if you have this pattern of casual interaction with your indigenous neighbors, you're opening yourself up for a surprise attack. And they <laughs> certainly did not want to do that. So the colonists and... Uh... The Wampanoag uh, Native Americans are, quote unquote, friends. They're allies in 1621. At some point, they're no longer allies. What happens? And you say school teachers now say they vanished. Like, what happens? Well, I think we should call them frenemies from the beginning. Frenemies, uh, you know, with, okay. Just to say, you know, they, they they have agreed to cooperate in matters of trade and military affairs, but they don't trust each other. Not much. Um, and in, even from the beginning. There was a critical mass of Wampanoag people who thought that this decision by their leader, Usamequin or Massasoit, to ally with these, these English was crazy. You know, what they said was, we know what the behavior of these people has been over, over, the, over the course of several years. They, you know, they've been raiding our coast, they've been enslaving our people, uh, attacking us unprovoked. What do you think is going to happen with this place? And the answer is, he didn't know. Of course, he, he didn't know what was coming down the pike. All he knows is he's facing an emergency right now in the form of the Narragansetts, and these people can help him get through it. It's a short-term decision. In the short term, it was the right decision. The Wampanoags maintained their independence because, in part, they had the backing of the English, who came to their defense more than once in this ongoing intertribal war. Sounds like a great story so far. And it very quickly degenerates. <laughs> the, how, the, how quickly? The, the reason, well, that that is difficult to say. 
Um, mm-hmm. What I can say is this, you know, we uh, we often call the period between we, by which I mean our, the collective we, um, we say, well, 50 years of peace uh, passed between, um, you know, the first Thanksgiving and then the Great War, King Philip's War. Uh, between the uh, English colonists of New England and the Wampanoags and their indigenous neighbors. Well, that 50-year period of peace was marred by regular war scares uh, between the two sides. There was a constant fear that war was about to break out, that one side was conspiring against the the other. And both groups harbored this fear. And the reason they harbored this fear is that Whereas Plymouth Colony was it was a nothing place, right? It starts with 50 people who can barely feed themselves. Half of them are women and children, right? They don't some of them actually die in the first winter, right? Half of them die. They go from a hundred people on the Mayflower to 50 in a course of months. Yeah. Um, they are they are no threat to Wampanoag sovereignty. Okay. But, But the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which is founded in 1629, most certainly is. It begins with what we call the Great Migration, and that's the influx of upwards of 15,000 people in less than 10 years into the colony. Now, 15,000 people might not sound like a lot now, but it was a lot then. It's the size of the greatest tribes in the very few of these tribes had more than 15,000 people. Um, What's more. These English colonists reproduced like rabbits. Uh, the the average <laughs> the the average English woman who came over on the Great Migration had eight children over the course of her life. Eight, and they're living. The, the children are living there. It's not like in the middle of of uh, of London where half the kids are going to die before they reach uh, a young age. On average, six and a half of every eight kids are living to adulthood and not only living to adulthood, but reaching their seventies and eighties. So this is a recipe for a population explosion. What's more, these English colonists come with livestock, cattle, horses, sheep, pigs, which reproduce like livestock. (laughs) And And the English make no attempt to fence in these animals. They just let them range over the country. Well, where these animals are attracted is to Native American cornfields and clam banks, which hogs, most of your, your listeners probably don't realize, hogs dig up clams. I didn't um, know that. Yeah. They, are, they are an environmental um, a shock force. And Native people very quickly find themselves being swarmed by colonists and their animals. What's more, the, the Wampanoag and more generally Native American expectation in this area and in almost all areas was that these guests would abide by the customs, the rules, the laws of their hosts. But that is not their intent. The English, like all Europeans of this era, saw themselves as Christian civilized people and Native people as savage pagans. And believed that by virtue of being civilized Christian people, they should lord it over the savage pagans and subject them to their laws and to their will and to seize their territory if they had need for it. Well, (laughs) Native people aren't going to concede to that. It's their country. And so the relationship starts to degenerate very, very quickly. And it's always just a question of when, not whether, there's going to be a major war. And that happens with King Philip's War. King Philip's War, which is named after the English name for Usamequins or Massasoit's own son, Pometacom, Metacom, again, known as, known as King Philip. The second generation of these Wampanoag. people in contacts are at war with one another. And, you know, for that matter, Plymouth Colony is led by a guy, Josiah Winslow, whose father, Edward Winslow, had been one of the main points of contact between Plymouth Colony and the Wampanoags. He had doctored Wampanoag people. He had slept over their houses. He tried to speak their language. He knew them intimately and helped to create the conditions for which the the alliance could flourish, under which the alliance could flourish. Um, it's their very children who go to war with one another. Dynamics which, change within a generation. 
within a generation. Yeah. I, I have many just questions to ask about this history, but I want to shift to something else that has grabbed my attention over the years. And you, your first chapter in your book is mourning in America. Mourning as in mourning the loss of something. Yes, Not with a you. With a you, thank you. <laughs> right, yeah. And there is actually a day called Day of Mourning. Mm-hmm. Is it Thanksgiving Day or the day after it? Uh, Native people led by Wampanoag activists hold a Day of Mourning protest on Thanksgiving. So, yeah, tell me Plymouth, about this. In place. the town of Plymouth. Oh, boy. In the town of Plymouth, over on a hill beneath a statue of Massasoit and overlooking Plymouth Rock and a replica of the Mayflower. So symbolic, you know, the location is deeply symbolic. Yeah. And, you know, what they this began in 1970 um, and a Wampanoag named Frank James uh, had been asked by the state of Massachusetts to speak at the 350th anniversary of, <laughs> of Plymouth's founding. And, uh, you know, James is he's a very well educated guy. He had a degree uh, from New England Conservatory of Music. He was a you know, fine trumpet player. Um, he taught music in the Nauset Regional Public Schools out on Cape Cod, and he studied history. He was a native. He was an activist in Indian country, and so you know, he wrote up what he thought was was, was the approach, the uh, appropriate talk for the 350th anniversary. And uh, the state did not take too kindly to his I would imagine so. view yeah. of it. And so when it reject when the state rejected his speech, he said, "Ah, to hell with it! I'll deliver it anyway on my own terms." And organized this day of mourning protest, uh, which attracted native people from throughout New England and even across the country, uh, members of the AIM movement, the American Indian movement, um, who were pushing red power, as they called it. A-A-I-M, American Indian movement. Okay. That's right. Um, yeah. They're they're probably best known for it, an armed standoff with the feds at, at Wounded Knee um, oh, wow. in the in the 1970s, uh, they all showed up, and the tradition stuck. And uh, na- various Native people have uh, continued to hold a day of mourning at that place and time every year up to now. Why have we not heard about this? I mean, you are a professor of history, and this is your interest. Uh, I'm. You almost never hear about this. TV, even on NPR. I don't think I've heard about this. Uh, Native people are so marginalized in United States. Even to this day. I think it's worse today. Um, Oh, you think it's worse today? uh, Yeah, I do in a lot of ways. And uh, and here's why I say Um, let's be clear about this and like and why it's so striking. There, There are more Native Americans than there are Jewish Americans. There are more Native Americans than there are Muslim Americans. There, there are not, more Native Americans than there are Jewish Americans? That is correct. And they control um, a larger portion of the country that, territorially um, than I think most non-Native people understand. And yet we have been taught both directly and indirectly and you know, I think the the subtle messages on this front uh, are ubiquitous throughout our society. That Native people have disappeared, that they're extinct, and we're not taught because we don't continue to follow Native America through history. We just they show up at the beginning, they might put up a brief resistance, and then they just yeah. go away. Yeah, we're not taught to see Native people as adapting through time and becoming fully modern members of society. So a native person who has a short haircut and wears a suit and carries a briefcase, shops at the supermarket, drives a car, you know, live, you know, li- lives lives in a rectangular house, are they're invisible to the broader American public? Um, but so is an Italian American or a Russian American, right? Yes. In that sense, in that specific sense that you were saying, has a short haircut, lives in a rectangular house, drives a car. I wouldn't know if they're Italian American or Russian American or you know whatever Syrian American. Right, but if they told you they were, you would accept at face value that they were who they said they were. When Native people look like you or I, uh-huh. and they say they say to others, "Oh yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm Native American, I'm Wampanoag," 
people immediately start saying, well, do you live in a teepee? Uh, <laughs> right. Do you, do you, you speak English? I'm amazed you speak English. You know, uh, they start quizzing them on their authenticity. And the standard for authenticity is whether they live as outsiders imagined they lived back at the moment of contact. And of course, none of us live like our ancestors did 400 years ago. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to survive in modern society. Well, the same goes for Native people. The, there is a fundamental difference between Native Americans and other ethnic groups in the United States insofar as this. Mm-hmm. A, they were here first. They didn't choose to come here. They were already here. And B, they are sovereign nations. Jewish Americans aren't sovereign nations. Italian Americans are not sovereign nations. Indigenous people, if they're members of enrolled uh, federally recognized tribes or state tribes, are sovereign, which means that to be Native American isn't just to say, oh, I descend from so-and-so or I perform these rituals. It, It means that you are a member of a political group that has sovereign rights within our society. Sovereign rights, by the way, which are guaranteed by Senate ratified treaties, which under the US Constitution are the supreme law of the land. And so that makes them fundamentally different than anyone else in American society. Do you think um, the tradition of uh, day of mourning has has brought more attention to the plight of Native American, or is it something that's largely ignored? As I, as I share with you, I don't think, I, I can't think of anyone that within my circle that even has heard of this. Right. Well, it, I think a number of people in New England have, have heard mm-hmm. of it. Um, and I, you know, I've noticed in just the last couple of years, some major news organizations are starting to pick up on, on the story. The Washington Post just ran a feature this past week um, on, this, on this very point. Um, but look, everyone loves Thanksgiving. Who wants to spend, <laughs> you know, this this day? Or, yeah. I mean, if, if we're going to mourn, it's going to be the behavior of our relatives after the day, uh, after exactly. the holiday. Who right? showed up unannounced, right? <laughs> that, that, that's right. Um, most most people don't want to use the holiday to reflect on uh, the crimes of the past. Um, Which goes so, back. Give me a moment. Let me read it which goes back that serious critical history tends to be hard on the living. They that's don't want right. to have that on Thanksgiving holiday. Right. right? It's hard. Right. It's hard to think of stuff like that. that that's right. That's um, right. Let's take a break here. Uh, stay with me. and professor Silverman as we get into the perspective. Did you know you can now preview our podcasts? That's right. Just click the podcast highlights button on our website www.historybehindnews.com and we will email you each episode's highlights and relevant links to news and history for free. Pretty cool, right? Professor Silverman, on this 400th anniversary of Thanksgiving, our Secretary of Interior, Deb Holland, is Native American. I think she's Laguna Pueblo um, Nation. Kevin Stitt, governor of Oklahoma, is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, and there are several Native American U.S. representatives. And we're more alert than ever before about social justice, this sort of the age of wokeness, and rightfully so. We got to know these things. but. Let's just go back to some of the questions I alluded to earlier in, in, our, in our podcast conversation. Every nation needs its feel-good traditions that unify. And, and I, I bet if, if we go back to other nations' histories, to sort of their feel-good nation history, they all will have some cruelty, some injustice, and ugliness in it. So I guess this is my question. How do we handle our... Thanksgiving story. Are we overcorrecting here? Oh, I don't think we're overcorrecting at all. I, just because one generation's uh, feel-good story worked for them mm-hmm. at a time in the past doesn't mean 
that feel good story works for us now. And, you know, look, we're, yeah. we're, we're having a national battle over the character of this country. And my take on it is that the battle is over the legacy of white supremacy. Um, white Americans have been dominant in this country from its very beginning and have constructed a series of myths and rituals that uphold that dominance. Well, the fact of the matter is we are a multicultural and multiracial nation. We have been from the beginning, even though um, whites have been the dominant group. And non-whites no, and, and their many, their many white allies are no longer going to tolerate rituals, statue, statues, and myths that uphold what they consider to be a fundamentally wrong and even an unjust society. So when you say they're not going to tolerate any longer, how do we deal with Thanksgiving then? Uh, let's just get to basics like school plays. When it comes well, to you know, look, let me let me be crystal clear uh -huh. about this point. I am not calling for an end to Thanksgiving. I am not declaring war on Thanksgiving. Yeah. I don't know any native people who feel that way. And I don't know anyone who says we should replace Thanksgiving with a day of mourning. No one is saying that. What I'm suggesting here is that when we get together with family and friends and offer thanks for what's good in our lives, let us not attach that ritual, which all of us believe Ooh. in, yeah, yeah. to a false history, which does damage to indigenous, our indigenous countrymen and women. Let me emphasize that. Our countrymen and women, right? They're part of this country. A national holiday should not be making light of their historical traumas or, or ignoring their historical traumas, um, a myth that blinds the rest of us to the fundamental colonial history of this country, what it was about. It, it's a brutal, brutal history. Yeah. So let's look at that history square in the face. If we're going to attach the history of Plymouth colonists and Wampanoags to this holiday, and I don't think we need to or that we should, but if we're going to do it, well, then let's get it right. My job as a historian is to call out inaccuracies about the past as they're being articulated by our country's leaders. Believe me, you don't want to live in a country where historians are not doing that. Because what well, President Xi, what he's doing in China, he's changing the history of the last 70 years to, for his own benefit. Yeah. Look at our last president. The <laughs> historical lies are rampant. Yeah. You, we, you need historians to keep people honest on both sides of the political spectrum, because yeah. Everyone in politics, no matter whether they're on the right or the left, want to harness history to their own political ambitions. Well, history usually doesn't lend itself neatly to the political agendas of modern day people. And so, you know, the job of historians like me is to do our best to keep society honest in the way it uses history. And so I am all for reinventing traditions, rituals, erecting new statues that meet the needs of our society and that reflect more accurately the past as we understand it. And our Thanksgiving tradition uh, sort of evolved to become what it is now. Um, and I've read this that up to during the 19th century, we really didn't have this thing called the Thanksgiving tradition, and it sort of evolved and became a national phenomena over the decades. Uh, in the same spirit, it can continue to evolve, right? Based on that is correct. Throughout the 17th and the 18th century, and then well into the 19th, even New Englander, white New Englanders who celebrated Thanksgiving never invoked pilgrims and Indians. That is a late 19th and 20th century invention. Interesting. We might call it revisionist history. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, all traditions are invented at one point or another, and they're invented for particular purposes at particular times. And just as those traditions were invented and, disc and other traditions discarded at those moments in time, we can do the same thing evolve um if you wanted our audience to remember just one point about thanksgiving what would that be colonialism is a bloody business it always has been and it always will be um and our country will be better off painful as it is 
to look at that bloody history square in the face and to come to terms with how it has shaped our society. Wonderful. Professor Silverman, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.